Good morning. We're reading this morning from the book of Mark. We're reading from our little booklets that uh, hopefully you have uh, one of. And if you don't have one, you can collect one. We're reading Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time has come and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. As Jesus travelled along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, fishing in the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Having travelled a little further along the sea, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, and those preparing their nets in the boat. Immediately he summoned them, and having left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants, they came and followed him. Thanks, Daniel and Simone, for leading us so well. Do keep that uh, Mark's Gospel open. We'll be looking at it. And uh, let me pray. Father, we thank you as we come to uh, look at one of the accounts of the life of the Lord Jesus, your son. Um, help me to uh, speak these words clearly and helpfully as we are introduced to this book. And uh, we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will be the one that will be speaking. We don't need to hear the words of men. We come to hear the words of the living God. So may your Holy Spirit speak into each of our lives so that we might be shaped and fashioned by your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the <clears throat> deep longings of people, uh, which appears to transcend all cultures, is a desire to answer the questions of one's purpose, one's meaning, and maybe even more importantly, one's identity. Finding answers to how did I get here and why am I here can be huge pursuits for many. Uh, some adopted children will in adulthood chase down their birth parents because in some way they see their identity caught up in their origins. I want to suggest to all of us this morning that the tracing of the origins of the church Finding answers to the how and why we are here are questions that are vital for us. It will assist us in evaluating whether our current church identity, our vision and our values are aligned with actually the purposes of God. Interestingly, as with our own lives, I believe we'll discover that the church's identity and its purposes are ultimately caught up in the identity and purposes of our founder, the Lord Jesus. Over this whole next term, we'll journey through the narrative of the Gospel of Mark, chapters 1 through 8. We've provided online studies that I would encourage you to look up and download and do personally, or encourage your life groups to use them, or, as we saw earlier, maybe mix and match with the Francis Chan videos which also, and teaching and studies, which will also be extremely helpful. 
But in our preaching, we're planning while looking at big picture in the studies, when the preaching, we're going to focus in more on particular details that will help us grasp the purpose and person of Jesus. The annual Floriard flower display in Canberra isn't randomly thrown together, but carefully designed. And Mark, guided by the Holy Spirit, is carefully woven together in what is the shortest of our Gospels, the details of Jesus' life in such a way that his identity and purpose become crystal clear to us. Mark is a divinely inspired design which magnificently explains the person and purposes of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This gospel will confirm that our identity and purpose as a church are indeed caught up in the identity and purpose of Jesus. We shall indeed see, as one person wrote, that down the corridors of time has travelled a man whose life and spirit have changed people's lives and shaped the course of history as no other man has ever done. And this man is Jesus Christ. He has made and continues to make a profound difference through his church and its members. So why do we exist as a church in Fig Tree and Greater Wollongong? Let's see what Mark has to say in this opening chapter. The first thing we note is that Jesus is Mark's message. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, is the opening line. Mark doesn't mince words, he's straight into it. As we saw last week, we shall see again that the gospel is first and foremost about a person. It's not primarily a set of ideas, a philosophical system, but it is thoughtful. It's not a mere ethical system, a set of morals and, uh, for the good life, although it raises the bar on morality very high. It's not a religious system, a, a set of rituals, liturgy, uh, sets of prayers and spiritual sacred movements for connecting with God, yet it is meant to lead us to worship. Now, God's gospel and the Christian faith is about a person, It's therefore about a relationship with this person, a relationship which we'll see ought to deeply transform our lives and our priorities. Now, I'm sure some of you would have been to the theatre and at the theatre you may be watching the stage and the actors are doing their thing and moving around the stage and suddenly you start to notice the lights are being dimmed. They get lower and lower and lower until it's almost dark. And then suddenly there's a spotlight comes on and the leading character of the play moves onto the stage and we all are wrapped in attention, waiting for them to speak. This is how Mark wants to portray Jesus. So much so that even John the Baptist, who had broken almost 400 years of silence, is quickly taken from centre stage. And the one who actually turns the spotlight on is the Father God himself at Jesus' baptism when he says these words, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Mark 1.1, the opening line, applies three identity markers 
to this star of human history. The first, Jesus. This is his given name. It reminds us he was a real person who walked in our human shoes. Jesus is also the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Joshua and means the Lord is salvation. Jesus is no ivory tower rescuer though, one who lives in the safe immunity of heaven, pronouncing theoretical solutions to the world's dilemmas or tut-tutting about people's foolishness. No, Jesus left the ivory tower, the heavenly city of the Father. He got involved up to his eyeballs in our sin-soaked dilemma. And in submitting to John's baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus was identifying with sinners, just as he would at the cross ministry. He commits himself to the cross in this baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And that is why the Father says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, because he's committing himself to the course of history that his father, indeed the councils of the Trinity, had determined would happen. So our first identity marker, Jesus the human who identifies with sinners, but as his name suggests, is also the Lord, is salvation. The second identity marker is Messiah. The Jewish people had long awaited the promised anointed Messiah, the Christ, the descendant of their great King David, one who would come and conquer those who oppressed them. Now, we saw this in 1 Samuel. We did this series and we saw that both Saul and David, the first Messiah 1 and Messiah 2, when they had been anointed, they immediately went out and had a victory on behalf of the people of God. So it is with Jesus, but with a twist. Messiah Jesus will battle and ultimately emerge victorious, not over Rome, but Satan. He will fight a spiritual battle for us. He won't use the the tricks of politics or power, but a wooden cross. This Christ didn't have a silver spoon in his mouth. No, he was a man of the arid, dangerous and testing wilderness of life. He knows what it is to go the way of God and resist temptation with God's help. He's the world's spiritual champion. He'll fight for us and he'll win for us. So Jesus first to identity markers. The human who is the Lord is salvation, the Messiah, our spiritual conqueror. Finally, we're told he is the son of God. A voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son. Here is the eternal Son of the Father, second person of the Trinity, for a season dependent on oxygen, just like you and I. A mystery beyond our imagining. A gift beyond our deserve. But if you put verse 8 the words of John the Baptist, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And you place them together in verse 10 
with the description of the Spirit descending on him like a dove. We are actually being shown that the Son will become the dispenser of the Holy Spirit. A sort of spiritual pharmacist dispensing the Spirit to medicate our sick, corrupted heart and giving us a new heart, a new spirit within, a new life. So the gospel is about Jesus, the Lord is salvation. It's about the Messiah, our spiritual conqueror. It is about the Son of God, the source of the spirit of renewal. He is the how and the why we exist. Mark has quickly revealed who the star of the gospel is. It's Jesus. But he also wastes no time in explaining what the star will do. He shares his priority. It is about Jesus' message. He's a preacher. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time has come and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark's gospel has been called the action gospel. It's the shortest and it rapidly moves through the events of Jesus' life. There are an abundance of miracles, but there actually are very little content of Jesus' teaching. There isn't a sermon on the mount like in Matthew. There isn't a sermon on the plain like there is in Luke. Substantial teaching. There's a small section in Mark 4, and we'll come to that in due course in this series. Yet when you study Mark and you study the words for preaching and teaching, you discover that there is more references, more use of the words preaching and teaching in Mark than any of the Gospels by a proverbial mile. Mark always has Jesus preaching and teaching. He doesn't give you the contents because he's already given it to you in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. He wants you to go back and realise that's what Jesus is on about. So what is it that Jesus is on about? Well, three points. Very simple sermon. It's biblical to have a three-point sermon. Jesus did it. Here's the first one. The time has come. Last week we heard how Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 spoke of Jesus dying and rising in accordance with the Scriptures. This phrase, the time has come, is in fact the same thing. That's what Jesus is declaring. All the promises of the Old Testament Scriptures are coming to fulfilment. We are moving from shadow land to substance land. The promise of a seed of Eve that would crush the serpent's head. The time has come. The sure word of 2 Samuel 7 concerning a Messiah king who would never be dethroned and who would rescue his people from their powerful demonic enemy. The time has come. The pledge of Isaiah's suffering servant who would be a light to the nations and become a sacrifice for sin. The time has come. The vision of the mighty son of man in Daniel 7 who would have an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The time has come. To all these wonderful promises 
Jesus is God's yes. Paul Barnett, in his commentary, writes, We stand at the beginning of Mark, at the threshold of a mighty act of God. So Jesus preaches, the time has come. And then he declares, and the kingdom of God is near. To speak of the kingdom of God is to speak of God's rule drawing near. In what sense, though, does Jesus use the word near? Uh, We use the word near in lots of ways, don't we? We could say that morning tea is near. Maybe not as near as you hope, but it is near. We could say that Fig Tree High School is near because it's just behind this wall. But I could say Joe is near. How is Jesus using the word near? Well, he's using it in this latter sense, like Joe is near, Jesus is near, that is, the king of God's kingdom is near, that is why the kingdom of God, the rule of God, has burst in upon our planet. The rest of the gospel will confirm this over and over again. As Jesus opens his mouth and repairs both a broken world and broken people with words of power and forgiveness. So Jesus preaches, the time has come and the kingdom of God is near. And then, as you might expect, since he is a king, he commands a response, repent and believe the gospel. Mark has already explained in the ministry of John the Baptist that repentance has to do with the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus invades our planet, our world, a world and society that we've turned upside down by our shameful, self-focused, misjudged choices, driven by personal pleasure and not divine praise. We have created a broken world broken in every sense of the world, spiritually, physically, emotionally. We are damaged goods. We all bring up dysfunctional kids because we are dysfunctional parents. Don't pretend that you don't make mistakes. We all make mistakes. We are sinful people. We're deeply, deeply damaged and in need of repair. Into this world, King Jesus comes, compassionately commanding us to turn back from self-rule to his rule, to face God for forgiveness and to entrust ourselves to him, to believe that he is God's yes, the king of God's kingdom, the source of forgiveness and the focus of faith. Several years ago, someone I know submitted a beautiful, spectacular tapestry um, to the Easter show to be among the tapestries that would be judged for prizes. You imagine her shock when she turned up and discovered that those who'd set up the displays had put her tapestry upside down. Uh, She was the creator She was the owner of the tapestry. She knew how it was meant to be. And so she contacted those people who had taken little care to find out how it should be displayed and she got them to turn it around and put it the right way up. So Jesus, 
as the owner and king of our world, comes and calls on all people to put the world right side up. So we've seen that Jesus is the message and his message is a command to set things right under his rightful rule. This is good news. It's such good news that there's an expectation that those who've come to embrace the good news will want to pass it on to those who've yet to hear it. That is the next thing that Jesus does. Indeed, immediately after him starting preaching, Mark presents Jesus as someone, his method, which is multiplication. Note verses sentences 17 to 20. As Jesus travelled along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, fishing in the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you into fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Having travelled a little further along the sea, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, and those preparing the nets in the boat. Immediately... He summoned them and having left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, they came and followed him. Mark is unmistakable in his teaching here. The sequence of Jesus preaching and then calling fishermen to follow him to be fishers of people couldn't be clearer, could it? Discipleship, following Jesus, involves immediately and without reserve engaging in Jesus' mission. Note, they left their nets, they left their careers, and they left their father, the second pair. They left relationships. They gave priority to the call of the kingdom. I'm reminded of the game, follow the leader. Just two rules, aren't there? You go where the leader goes and you do what the leader does. My dear sisters and brothers in Christ, Jesus' method for getting his message out is perfectly clear. There is no following Jesus without fishing with Jesus. This is not an optional extra. This is fundamental to being Christian. We will all do it differently. We all are given different personalities The owner has shaped and fashioned us so that we'll be most effective in reaching particular people he wants to bring across our path. There's no one way of sharing the gospel. There's only one gospel. But you can find your way, your niche for sharing Christ. But that you must share him is not an optional extra. It's the command of the king. Feel the full weight of Mark's spirit-inspired, fast-paced narrative. The call of the king of God's kingdom is a call to follow Jesus on mission and this call takes precedence over any other call or obligation, be it career or family, two of our biggest distractions or, if you like, excuses. Repentance, it appears, doesn't just involve turning from self-rule to the king's rule, it also incorporates a turning from personal business to the king's business. Note, the call to repent and to follow are not given in the form of a request by colleagues. They're more like a command of a sergeant in the midst of a war. You can't say, now, just hang on. Do you think that's the best plan? No. If the sergeant says, go and do this, you do it. You haven't got time in a war to stop and have a debate about it. 
That's the thrust of this text. These are the commands of a king. These commands raise questions for all of us to consider. For example, are we self-employed or are we kingdom-employed? To be a Christian is to be in full-time ministry, whether that be at home, work, school, university, club, community service, sports field, or in vocational ministry, such as myself. But do we really see life this way? Are our lives consumed with the delights of Wollongong life, which are many? Where are our creative energies focused? Money-making, retirement, painting, gardening, golfing, looking for affirmation, house-cleaning, probably not that one, child-rearing or child-mining if you're a grandparent? Do we consider embracing these particular activities as opportunities for gospel mission? Or have we divided our life into sacred and secular? It's not how God sees the world. Have any of us become more house, garden, study and career proud than gospel proud? How many of us will be comfortable having our parents, our children or our grandparents come and share publicly that these are the priorities of my parents or my grandparents and do that publicly? What would they say? Is it obvious to them that our first priority is following Jesus and engaging in his mission? I'm not sure that's what my grandparents kids would say. Are we more concerned about our grandchildren's or child's knowledge of maths and English than the knowledge of God? Are we so busy feathering our own nests, nests that demand more and more upkeep, that we are too tired to toil for the gospel? Have our homes become escapes or showpieces, so now we are too nervous to open them up for hospitality, because I'll have to clean them again. Are our bank balances and investments so tied up for a rainy day that the gospel work here and overseas is hamstrung because of so few resources? Have we so used all our creative energies in our employment or landscape garden that we have none left for imaginative evangelism? Just maybe some of us have been so caught up in church service that we have next to no contact with people outside the church. If we're asked to bring a non-Christian friend to an event, we can't name one. Is there a possibility that we have isolated ourselves from the heart of gospel discipleship? That is, we aren't involved in fishing with Christ for those who are outside the aquarium. As Jesus our King ordered us to quick march into society, but we are still marking time. These searching questions make me feel uncomfortable because they call me to change. They call me to servanthood and personal sacrifice, neither of which I am by nature excited about. 
but face them I must, for I can still hear the haunting command of Jesus the Messiah, King of God's kingdom and Son of God. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Here is the why of the church's existence, mission, our purpose. So we have discovered that our identity and purpose as a Christian community is caught up in the identity and purposes of another, our founder, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one we follow. Mark's opening narrative has explained the how and the why we came to be a church in Fig Tree in Greater Wollongong. The how was caught up in the action of God, Father, Son and Spirit in the first century Palestine. And the waves of that event still wash over us. The why is caught up in God's mission purposes to have his good news proclaimed. To have lost people who are drowning in a sea of secular opposition and religious confusion caught and brought into the missional community of faith. The reality is God's mission strategy could not be any simpler than it is. Those who know the good news, those who know Jesus, pass it on to those who don't yet know it. We are called to follow our leader, Jesus. Hush. Be still. Hear the haunting and challenging words of our Lord as they echo from that first century by the waters of the River Jordan or the Sea of Galilee. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people.